a lot of people ask me, what's heaven going to be like? And it's the, really the wrong question. really is the wrong question. So my, my typical answer, what's heaven going to be like, is this. And people are like, what? No, what's it going to be like? I mean, are we going to have fishing? going to have the golf? going to have the football? We're going to have the football, right? They're, they're in Nebraska. They never win. They're undefeated. I'm like, no, no, that's not heaven. Heaven is like... Because I've kind of come to believe that, 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 that what we call heaven, after we die, our souls leave our bodies, we're in the presence of God, longing for what he longs for, which is one thing, that people come to know him, right? Before he returns. And I literally have come to believe that that, that sense of time that we have today, you know, we, we measure time as human beings, changes once we are out of our body and in the presence of God. Why? Well, because for God, what does it say? A thousand years is like what? A day. Right? So when we are in the presence of God, our time, our earthbound time is gone. We are now in the presence of a timeless God. And I really have, the, have, a, have a sense that our experience of heaven will be like that. Then comes new earth. Right? And so I said the right, the right question to ask is not, you know, what will heaven be like? But the right question to ask is, what, what is my life going to be like on a new earth with God that actually will endure for eternity? And that, that kind of changes the picture that, that I think that we carry around with us in our minds. Um, at least it, it does for me. You know, growing up in the church and, and people tell me, Luke, when you die, your soul's going to go to heaven. I thought, boy, I'm going to get into heaven. I'm going to be on a cloud. I'm going to get one of those fast clouds. <laughs> get a harp. I'm going to play the harp. I'm like, you know, but it's going to get boring. Pretty soon you're like, ah, if I played the harp, I want to do something else. No, that, well, that's not it. That's not, the, that's not the picture the Bible gives us. It gives us a very real life uh, that has physicality to it. And yet at the same time, it's different than anything we're going, that we do experience in our world today. So when you're reading Revelation 21 and 22, you're at, the, you're at the end of the book, and you're getting these, I call them puzzle pieces, that allow you to start to put a few pieces down that remind us of a little bit of what life on New Earth is going to be like. We've, we've already kind of put some things down. So when we're on, when we're on New Earth, all right, well, we have bodies, Yes. Will they be like our bodies today? Yes and no. Okay, so there's physicality to them. I can eat. Thank God we can eat. Not only will we be able to eat, but we'll be able to eat good things like donuts, like you guys are eating today. Those will be calorie free. Now there is a section of there's a section of New Earth where they grow broccoli. Stay away from it. That's high, high calorie stuff. But we can eat. That's the good news. Is there's joy in that, right? It's the the, the good things of God. We get to take them in. We could walk through a wall. I mean, Jesus' resurrected body has physicality, and yet it's spiritual at the same time. Do I understand that? Nope. Do I pretend to understand that? Nope. It's a puzzle piece. I like to call it that because it's puzzling. My mind, human, earthbound mind can't comprehend that, but it's, it's the picture we get. Physicality, and yet spiritual. Do we have relationships on New Earth? Absolutely we have relationships on New Earth. Um, I think about this as a pastor. One of the hardest things that happens in our lives, and, and Julie Keeley, by the way, is, is going through this right now uh, as she gets ready to move here. It's really, really hard when you um, say goodbye to a congregation that you've served and you've been a part of people's lives. Uh, even if it's been just a few years, it's really hard. Um, I, I, I still remember 
you know, making that first move from Iceberg, Wisconsin, uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska. <clears throat> and, 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 you know, I remember just these people that we had fought the war with, you know, and you'd been part of their lives and, and you stood, stood in, in graveyards and buried people and stood at the altar and married people and it's just hard. So as Julie, I think about that, Julie getting ready to move here and she's got people in Bozeman, families she served, that's the, the hard part. What helps me is realizing that on new earth for eternity, we come together again, right? There's no loss other than the loss of a short period of time in this physical earthbound life. That helps me. We do have relationships. Are they the same as they are here on earth? No, they're not. Why? Well, we've kind of looked at it, that we, we relationally become more like angels, relationally, than, than human beings. Okay, so do angels have relationships with one another? Absolutely they do. They're not male, they're not female. So we'll always be different than angels. We, we always will be. Will, 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 the, will there be angels in eternity? Yes. They're a created being. They'll still exist. They're spiritual. They have no body. They're not male, they're not female. Our relationships become more like theirs in that we're not any longer given in marriage to one another. All right? We have close, intimate relationships with one another, all as servants of, of God. Okay? Um, when you get to chapter 22, and I'll just kind of skip through a little bit of this, you're, you're then starting to get this kind of high-level picture of a God who is our constant provision. Uh, part of his provision, we, we, we read this in chapter 21, it repeats in chapter 22, is there, there's no longer a sun and a moon. Uh, what we know as the created universe that sustains life, right? Uh, the, the, the sun is gone. And God becomes our source of light. He's fully present. Uh, what does that look like? What does that mean? I, again, our earthbound minds cannot fully comprehend this. What I do comprehend is when God put the sun, where he put the sun to sustain uh, life on earth, it, it both sustains life and it takes life away. Remember, remember what God did to help us live here on earth uh, for a long time? Uh, even after the fall, you get people like Methuselah who live hundreds of years. How do they do that? Okay. Well, they ate oatmeal every morning, <laughs> right? No. Remember what God did? Between the, between the, the sun and, and the earth, he put waters, right? A canopy of waters. And so the UV rays that now steal our life away, you know, most, most people will say one of the things that kills us is the sun. Those UV rays are being refracted by that water. What happened to the canopy? Well, I, I love, I love uh, the theory of uh, uh, Herman Raywinkle who wrote a little book. If you've never read it, you've got to read it. It's a classic. It's called The Flood. The Flood. I read it when I was in junior high school. And um, Herman says, you know what? The flood is in part that canopy that is now released upon the earth. It no longer is present. So the rays of the sun today come and kill us, right? They're no longer refracted. It makes sense. 
So what I'm saying is when we get into the new earth, there is no sun, there's no moon, there's God who is present, he's our light, there's no day, and there's no night. I wonder, does that mean do we, do we sleep? Well, Jesus physically, when he was on earth, he slept. But it's a question. Do we sleep? For sure we don't snore, all right? But we may sleep, we may not sleep, because there really is no day and night. Because God is present, we have a light source. There is no nighttime, right? There is no sickness or sin present. So you're getting all these little puzzle pieces, and at a very high level, chapter 22 starts to say to us, and God remains our constant provision. We never stop and think, oh no, you know, am I, is there going to be food tomorrow? Are we going to make it? Uh, do we have enough money? Uh, there, God is your constant provision. Now the language that he uses is what I'm going to call Eden-esque. In other words, the picture in chapter 22, is, it's, it's symbolic, but it's meant to say, the symbols in it are meant to say, just like in Eden, God provided for Adam and Eve constantly, so on new earth will God be our constant provision. So you see some of the language that he uses. Chapter 22, this angel who's showing John around and shows him this, this river of the water of life. Okay, well, remember what Jesus called himself? I'm the living water. So it's, it's a way of saying, who, who is your provision? You have life sustained through Jesus Christ. Okay. This river is described here as flowing through the middle of the city, right? So don't, don't say to yourself, oh, well, that means on New Earth we're going to have this big road and a river down its middle. That's not what he's saying. He's just meant to say that this, this water of life proceeds from the throne and goes through the, the middle of the city. Well, it's meant to say what? That wherever you are in the presence of God, you have his provision. You have life through him. Uh, on either side of this river being described is the tree of life. And we looked at this uh, uh, two weeks ago, the idea that in Eden you had two trees, right? You had the tree, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you had the tree of life. And of one, God said, don't eat. Don't eat of that. And the, the purpose for that tree, I believe, if you put it in one word, was relationship. That if you remove the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a fruit that if you eat it, you, you become conscious of what is right and conscious of what is wrong in such a way that you become your own God. The purpose of that tree was relationship. Remove that tree from, from the garden and God never says to Adam and Eve, do not eat of this. And what do you have? You have robotic beings who can't sin, who, who simply have life with God, but is it a real relationship? And part of our relationship with God comes from the fact that we have freedom of the will to sin. And we, and we do pretty well with it, by the way. Um, but I don't have a relationship with God apart from that. I'm just an automaton. And so I, I always look at that tree and say, that is part of God's grace, that in creation, he says, I want to create a creature who loves me, and I love him and her. And I'm going to do that by giving my creation the choice to actually turn away from me. And um, 
as Lutherans, we, we teach, yes, that we have that freedom of the will to, to turn away from God, to push away His grace, uh, to say no to the Spirit of God who is seeking to bring us into a relationship uh, with Himself. Okay? Um, the tree of life is different. The tree of life is meant to do it, to sustain my physical life. So for an Adam and an Eve, God would say, eat of this tree. It will give you life eternally. You're meant to live forever. That, that the, the first creatures God puts on earth, he says, you're, you're going to live forever. Now that doesn't change. Adam and Eve are still alive, but they're today's souls, right? Physically, they were alive through and sustained through the tree of life. Always intriguing to me, and I won't spend much time on it, but after the fall, after Adam and Eve eat of the tree of knowledge of you, and they're able to say, you know what, we, we can be our own gods. I mean, that's the temptation, right? You can know what's right and wrong. Now God comes back into the garden and says, I must protect you from the tree of life. And remember, God, God puts cherubim, or what we would call warrior angels, around that tree with, with swords to prevent anyone from eating of that tree ever again. Okay. Because God says, I don't want you to now live forever in this fallen condition. And so um, here in Eden, if, if you will, you have a second Eden. The new earth is being described that way. The river of life is Jesus who is sustaining us. The tree of life, right? For us today, we would say our tree of life is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our tree of life. In, on New Earth, the tree of life is what it's, it's, again, it's just symbolic. It's meant to say, God will sustain our lives forever. There is no end to them anymore. There is no, there is no death, okay? An interesting phrase that comes at the end of verse number two, it says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And initially, uh, it's believed that's, that's what the purpose of the leaves of the trees of life were to be for, for healing. Now, Adam and Eve, when they fell, remember they hear the voice of God in the garden, and what's, what, what did they do? They covered themselves with what? Leaves from this tree. Okay? Think about what that means. What are they saying? If, if the leaves of the tree of life are meant for healing, they're in essence saying we're going to heal ourselves. We'll cover ourselves. Fascinating is when God approaches them, they know that they're truly not healed. They're uncovered. Even with my, my little leaf in place, right? I always get a kick out of that. Uh, you know, you go to these places where they put those little statues of Adam and Eve, and they always got those little things on a hinge. And of course, they're, they got you on video. They're watching, who's going to lift that thing? You're like... <laughs> gotcha. Anyway, um, I'm going to heal myself. No, you're not. No, you're not going to heal yourself. Okay. Um, the nations have been healed by the leaves of the tree. Well, it's meant to say what? That, to, that in new, on new earth, right, where we come as a healed people. Uh, all nations healed. Healed from what? Physical ailments? No. From our worst ailment of all. From sin itself. And so we're sustained and there is no longer uh, sin. 
to me important, and, and maybe this is not as important to other people, but this, to me this is very important. And in verse 3 it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. No longer will there be anything accursed. Well, we spent a little time on this two weeks ago, but, but for me personally, one of the best things about New Earth is the removal of not only sin, but the desire to sin. Okay? The reality is every one of us, one of, the, one of the most relatable Bible passages in the New Testament for all of us in this room comes from the pen of Paul. Remember when in Romans, I think we looked at this, Romans 7, he's talking about sin. And what does he say? He screams at the top of his voice, why God am I like this? I want to follow you. I'm called to follow you. I'm called to be an apostle. So why is it that the very things I don't want to do, I do? That's Paul saying that. That brings Actually, that brings me a little comfort. I'm like, you know what? St. Paul is saying that? Thank you. Because I feel that way all the time. I'm like, why, why did I just say that? And it's like, yeah, why, why, did you, why did you say it? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Because I'm a sinner, that's why. Our, our inner self, our old man, is dark. It's really dark. And then he says, the things that I want to do, no, I'd say no to them. And so you just have that, that battle that's going on. And it's not just like a battle that happens every once in a while. It's every single day. All day. That fight inside of us. And God says, released from that. You're no longer under that, that curse of sin. The earth is no longer under a curse. Today it is. I mean, if somebody asked me, quite pointedly, this is not very popular to say, but somebody says, well, why, why, do we, why is the earth such a mess? Why do we have, you know, we got, turn on the TV this morning, there's cars floating down streets in Maryland. What, 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 what's all, where did this thing come from? These floods and fires and tornadoes and all of this stuff, I'm like, came from God. They're like, no, what are you saying about God? That God did this? I'm like, yep. Oh, that, is, that doesn't sound like a very good God. I'm like, oh, it's an absolutely good God. He put the curse on earth. And in Romans, he tells us, until he returns, the earth groans. It's crying out for his return. That, that tornado, is, it's making a sound. What it is, it's, if you could really hear it, it's a groaning. That tornado knows more than most human beings. It's saying, God, put me to an end. I'm broken. And I don't want to be broken. And so why does God put this curse on the earth? So that you and I as human beings can figure out that we can't tame a, a Zika virus, a mosquito, with all of our brilliance. Created these big companies and I'm... I'm this important person. Oh, yes. Well, can you tame a mosquito? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. Brilliant humans. This is what God is saying to us is in all of your brilliance, guess what you are? A human being created and in need of me. And so when you come to the new earth, the earth is released from its curse. Nothing accursed will be in it. Now, the next part is fun. You guys got to follow me on this. It says, and his doulos is the Greek word, all right? 
and his douloi. Most of your Bibles will say his servants. Is that what it says in your Bible? And his servants. Okay. I like that the Greek has a little bit more depth to it because it means his slaves, his owned ones. We, we are the ones who are owned by Jesus Christ. So it's really saying, and the ones who are owned by him will, does it say in your Bible, will worship him? Does it say that? Will worship him. Okay, will serve him. Okay. I, I kind of like this. I was, I was making some notes, and I, was, I thought, you know, I better ask my professor this question. If we're going to, if it says his servants will worship him, I'm like, well, what, what style uh, of worship? <laughs> Maybe on New Earth they'll have like multiple styles, right? They'll have like, here's the traditional people, here's the contemporary people, don't go, there's the Lutherans, just whew, stay away from them. Here's the jazz people, we get the bluegrass people. You know, um, Rick Warren's church there in California, they have that. They have all of these little places you can go into. Like, I want the bluegrass. Well, they got the bluegrass worship. They did, Rick preaches in all of them, like by a video, uh, until they can afford a hologram, which is probably the next thing they'll have. So you go in, you got Pastor Rick preaching on the video screen and bluegrass, and that's what they do. How about the jazz service today, the German polka service tomorrow? I'm going to have the, you know, they got all that stuff going on. I'm like, is that ser seriously? That's going to be it? I asked a woman one time, she's, she's real upset with me, because we had a guitar uh, for Silent Night. Played it by guitar, which actually the first time it was played was played by guitar, right? Silent Night was, isn't that true? True story. So she, she, and this, she was a beautiful. Just this lady, I love this lady to death because she, she actually grew up and had to live through Hitler in Germany, and um, I had high respect for her and her husband. But she, she would, she would say to me, she says. I don't like the plunk plunk. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, the plunk, the plunk plunk. And I said, well, Silent Night was written and then it was plunk plunk. And she's like, yes, only because the rats chewed through the organ bellows. <laughs> I'm like, yep. I said, that's probably, that's a true point. They were Baptist rats, okay? They came, <laughs> sent them in there, chewing through the bellows, and that's how the Baptists got the, the plunk plunk going there. That's how it started, just like that. So, so I would say to her, seriously, I'd say, now seriously, I'd say, what would happen if you got into the new earth and all they had was plunk plunk? Where, what would you do? No, they will have no plunk plunk on the new earth. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Well, the better word here, and, and it's kind of an interesting word is, and, and some of you have it in your translations, the actual word used here is latreusen. And uh, latreusen has an English word in it that I think you can hear when I say it a little bit more slowly. Latrine. Latreusen. Latrine. Can you hear it? Latreusen. Latrine. So if you were in the military and I put you on latrine duty, would that be fun? Okay, Jesus, when he took off his clothes and put on a towel and bent down to wash feet, do you know why they were like, oh, don't do that? If you've ever been to, uh, to, to Rome and walked the ancient streets, they're kind of interesting because through the middle of the streets are these kind of lifted up squares of stone 
that you can hop across. Okay. And you ask the, the guy, what, what, what is that? He said, well, these were created so that a chariot could ride over them. They'll chariot to clear them. And so your, your high-ranking officials would ride through the streets on a chariot. <clears throat> Soldiers and other people would come across those stones, but the majority of the population was required to walk down in the streets. And I'm like, oh. And the streets were the latrines. I'm like, oh. They're like, yeah. Well, when, when the water, when it rained, like today, it rained, that's, the streets became sewage. And so to wash someone's feet is one of the lowest things you can do. Jesus takes off his clothes, puts on the towel, and gets down, and he says, oh, I'm going to do latrine duty. Okay. And it's interesting that that's the word that shows up here, is his slaves, those who are owned by him, will, your Bible say, serve him. Will latrine. In other words, when we're on New Earth, we don't have this sense of haughty high positions. We don't say, "Well, I'm I'm a millionaire or I'm a no." We're all the same. We all look at one another and say, "We're we're owned by Jesus Christ." Okay. Um, I think here on Earth, you know, we we ascribe power. To positions and money in a way that is just flat out unhealthy. And uh, what he's saying is, it, on New Earth, you don't have that. You don't say, well, I live in a gated neighborhood on New Earth. No. Um, we live together. And we look at one another and we don't judge one another as, well, I'm better than that person or I'm higher than that person. We, we are all on latrine duty, owned by the one who made us and our whole purpose is to do what is to serve him. And so I, I prefer the Greek here is his slaves will serve, will latrine him, right? Verse 4 says, they, they will see his face and his name will be upon their foreheads. That's significant. Remember that in the Old Testament, um, early on, the children of God recognized that Post Adam and Eve's sin, you you couldn't see the face of God and live. Okay, what about Eden? In Eden, you you could see God face to face. There's an intimacy there, right? Which is broken by sin. No longer can you look in the face of God. So even Moses, you remember uh, Charleston Heston in the in the movie <laughs> version goes up on Sinai, and and according to the scriptures does not look upon God's face, but only his, what, his shadow, and still comes down. Remember, they got that light glowing on Charleston. Has, he's like, ooh, look at Charleston. Well, yeah, he's glowing, like, like, I, like the touched by the angel kind of people. Um, well, to see God's face means intimacy. And as this broken, sinful people, since the, the day of Adam's sin, we, we cannot look upon the face of, of God. In New Eden, New Earth, that intimacy is restored and we are able to, to, to look upon God face to face. So that's really the picture that we're being given here is we have that sense of intimacy with God that allows us to, to walk with Him. By the way, this is one of the things that makes biblical translation of Old Testament manuscripts difficult. 
when you go back and look at old old um, manuscripts, uh, you, you discover that the people of God had such a fear of his, his being in his presence that um, rather than risk literally saying or writing the word Yahweh, uh, they, would simply, they would simply write the consonants that represent Yahweh. Okay? Well, those consonants uh, make up the whole of, of old, old Testament manuscripts. And so when you, get, when you get one and you start to look at it, uh, all you have are consonants, no vowels, and no periods or spaces between anything. And so when you're trying to read Old, old Testament manuscripts, you're, you're just trying to read this string of consonants and you've got to know where one word begins and one word ends. It's extremely difficult to, to do that. It's not until the Masoretes that they begin to put actually vowels in underneath those consonants so that you, you can and separate the words so you can make sense of an Old Testament manuscript. So you go look at the, at the, at the Dead Sea Scrolls and you'll see Masoretic uh, vowels that are, that are added. They're part of the text. The same, the same consonants that stand for the word Yahweh also happen to be the same consonants that if you re-vowel them become Yehovah. Jehovah. And so in the Old Testament, rather than say Yahweh, you would say Jehovah, Jehovah God. That's why, by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses in, insist on retaining that word for God because it's a legalistic system, Jehovah's Witnesses. And you, you can't speak God's name, so we say we are Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, that's an Old Testament, Old Testament term. Here, you have the picture of a Yahweh who desires to meet with us face to face. Why? Because our name, his name is on our forehead. It's back to the word Duloy, slaves. Who wears someone's name on their forehead? A slave. What is it saying? I belong to him. I'm his. And so I'm able to, to come, not as a slave who is put in change, not as a slave who is separated and put in separate quarters, but I live with him. We live face to face. We have intimacy together. That's the relationship that we have. Verse 5 says there's no, there's no night, no need of light, of lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will... See what your texts say. Mine says they will reign forever and ever. What does, does yours kind of do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Whenever I hear that word rain, a couple of things go off. One is a song. Of course, you always hear that, um, that, that, that great handle piece, and he shall reign forever and ever, right? Um, I'm thinking, Ted told me we're going to sing that for, for our choir's going to sing that for Easter this year. Does that, sound, that sounds right. That sounds good, doesn't it? I always I tell Ann it's not Easter till he shall reign forever and ever. But my question is, this doesn't say he will reign forever and ever. It says, and they will reign forever and ever. Hmm. Well, my, my question is, reign over what? 
Because again, our relationships with one another are intimate. There is no class system, right? So, so what are we reigning over? Well, it's interesting the word that's used here. The word that's used here in verse 5 is the word baseliusai, okay? Um, when I was memorizing words in Greek, sometimes you use little catchphrases to, uh, you know, to remember a word. So I remembered the word, I kind of attached the word bossy to this. Someone that's a bossy, I'm the king here, you know? It's like the little six-year-old that says to the three-year-old, I'm the boss, I'm the bossy here, right? Oh, bossy, bossy luo can be translated to, to king over or to sovereign over or to reign over. And that's, that's why your translations say they shall reign over. What they miss is the sense underneath the word here and the sense of what it meant to be a king in Israel. Okay, So from a worldly perspective, <clears throat> if I'm the king, what's my position to my subjects? I am above them or I'm underneath them? What is it? I'm above them, right? So that's our worldly picture of Baselusai. I'm bossy. I'm the king. I'm on top. If I say, change the channel from HGTV to football, boom, it's going to happen, right? I'm the Baselujo here, right? Um, some of you ladies like over my dead body. I was in HGTV is Sunday. It's going to stay on there. I'm like, oh. Okay. Now, in Israel, a king. So David is anointed the king. And he's placed into his, his office. What is his position? Is it over the subjects or under the subjects? It's under. When God created the position of king, here's what he says. You, Mr. King, serve the nation. You give yourself for them. They're not here to serve you. All of you are here to do what? To serve me. And so you come underneath those people and take care of them and love them and lead them into my presence. So the, the, word, the word to reign or to king in the, in the Hebrew context does not mean what it means in our Western context. We associate it politically with being top dog and having, you know, having a position of privilege and power. Whereas, there's the basin and tal again. Jesus says, no, no, no. The greatest among you will be what? Servants. And so the sense of the word that's used here, when it says they shall reign forever and ever, it's to do what? It's, it's to serve the king forever and ever. There's a stewardship element to it, okay? Just like there was in Eden when God said to Adam and Eve, I've put you here to tend to my garden. Name the creatures. Tend the garden. Keep it right. They worked. And their work was what? Was their reign. They took care of creation. And so the picture that's being painted is um, one where on, on new earth, I don't know exactly what our lives are going to look like from the, from the standpoint of jobs. Um, you know, will, will we once again create cars and roads and all that stuff? Well, I kind of hope not. Um, we just don't know. But what we do know is that our, our, we will work. And our work, 
on an ongoing basis will be stewarding that which belongs to the one whose name is across our forehead and to whom we belong to, the king. So that's the essence of reigning here. It's not we're standing above or standing over, but it's rather what? We're coming underneath and stewarding that which God gives us to do. And I had that sense that in on new earth for an eternity, God, God is the one who gives us to do whatever it is we're going to be doing. And we'll do it with joy. Um, not, oh, I got to get up and go to work again today. But a real sense of, I have this privilege to serve my king. And that's the essence of to reign uh, forever and ever. I'm going to stop there. So I want to close out um, next week with with these, this last section, Jesus is coming. It's what I call the Maranatha session. And uh, I want to get into that and make sure we finish it out strong. Let's, let's pray. Lord God.